The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. I want to make a confession to you. Prayer is difficult for me. Now, like, I know, I know how to pray. Like, I, I get, like, the practical, like, reality of, like, things to say and what happens. And, 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 I, and, I, and, like, I'm a professional at it, right? Like, I get paid to know the right things to say at the right time to the right people in the right settings, right? I'm supposed to know how to pray. But if I'm being honest, like, when I'm alone, I struggle. I don't know what to say or I get too busy to pray or I just don't feel it. And so it doesn't happen. Now, sometimes it's because of the chaos of life. Like, sometimes, like, it's, it's just the midst of bedtime routines and catching up on This Is Us and finally getting a chance to check in with my wife. Like, like I, just, I just lose track and I forget. Other, other times, like, it's just pure exhaustion. Like, I'm just mentally worn out and I just don't, don't want to think about, like, what to say. And so I just don't worry about it. Sometimes I actually make, like, excuses. Like, I figure, well, you know what? I, I, can, I can theologize out of this one and be like, well, God knows everything anyway, so he already knows what I'm going to say. So why say it at all? Because God's got it figured out, and he's already got a plan. So what am I, how am I going to really help give something to God that's even going to help him figure out what to do anyways? And so I come up with excuses. And then other times it's just more practical. Like, I know that there have been times where I've prayed. And I prayed for that situation, that, that person, that circumstance. I prayed, and God didn't do what I wanted him to do. And so I'm mean, like, why bother anyways? Does this really even work? And no, I share this with you because as I share this message today, what I've been wrestling with is, I, I, I've been wrestling with, I'm not sharing this as an expert in prayer. I don't, I, I don't have it all figured out. I struggle through my prayer life. But I, as I've been reading and studying the scripture, God's been working on me. Because all of us, we have obstacles when it comes to our prayer life. Doubts and questions and information and education or even inspiration or motivation to do it. Right? There are obstacles that get in the way between us and God, between, our, between us and the prayer life that we want to have. Things that distract us or demotivate us or confuse us or, or challenge us. And so I want to share, not from a position of expertise, but from somebody who's struggling with these obstacles as well. Confident that God has something to say to all of us as we try to overcome these obstacles. If you could open up to the book of James chapter 5. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,800. And 85. Today we're beginning a new series that will carry us through the season of Lent. And the series is called Overcome. And oftentimes for Christians throughout the season of Lent, what can, be, what can happen during this time is there are certain things and habits and focus that we give ourselves to. And so maybe, maybe some of you give up certain things for Lent to remind yourself of the sacrifice of Jesus. Some of you, some of you take up spiritual practices like devotional reading or a Bible reading plan, um, or you focus on your prayer life. And so we want to lean in during this season. And think about what are the obstacles to prayer and how can we engage in prayer? Not because it's something for us to do for God, but because in prayer, God is at work in us and for the sake of our world. And so I want to start by reading from the book of James and it will help us get a foundation and really get the why behind prayer. 
the, the why behind why even bother praying in the first place. So I'm going to begin in verse 13, and then we'll spend some time talking about some of these things that we're reading. It, it, James writes, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise, which is just singing prayers. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders, which is, are the pastors, the leaders of the church, to pray over him, to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, I want to focus on that last half of that last verse, because I think this is probably the most significant verse in this, this short section. And so everything that James writes leading up to this is really giving a foundation. He's saying, pray in this situation, and pray in this situation, pray in this circumstance. And then he kind of concludes all of those by saying, the prayer of a righteous man, or the prayer of a righteous person, is powerful and effective. Which raises some very important questions. Because if the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, well, how do you become that person? Like, how do you become the kind of person who God actually answers your prayers? Like, how, like, what does it mean to be righteous? How righteous do you have to be to get God to pay attention, to respond, to do what you want him to do? Like, who does prayer actually work for? Because James has somebody in mind when he's saying the prayer of a righteous person. And so is that me? Because if I'm honest, like if I look at how God has responded to many of my prayers and the answers that I wanted and, 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 what actually, and what actually happened, I might come to the conclusion that I'm not sure I'm one of those people that prayer works for. And then once we have the answer to who does prayer work for, then the next question is, well, what is it effective at doing or changing? What can prayer actually have the power to do? So I want to start with that first question. Well, who does prayer work for? And so when James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, right? who is that righteous person? Now, the word righteousness means right relationship with God. It's a person who's in good standing with God. And so then the natural question, well, is if we want God to answer our prayers, well, how good does that good standing have to be? Like, how good do we have to get in order for God to hear us? Like, are we talking about we just need, like, a C average prayer life, and then, like, then, then God, then will, God will answer me. Like, as long as I get, like, 70% of my days, like, at least most of the time I'm praying, um, then, then, then are we good? Like, like how do we measure how, how much prayer or devotion or commitment or faith is enough to be the kind of person who God actually answers our prayers? Because I'm not sure I am that person. Is it just I need more good to outweigh the bad? Like, like, what is it? Now, Jesus can help us understand this. He doesn't help us feel better about it, but he actually helps us understand it. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching to the crowds, and he says this about righteousness. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, unless your goodness, unless your devotion, your commitment, your generosity, unless all of those things that good people do, unless all of that surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you're not good. Now, in most cases in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he's usually like slamming him. That's not the case here. 
Like, usually they're bad examples. In this situation, what Jesus is actually doing is he's pointing out how good they are. He's saying, all right, you've seen their devotion. You've seen their commitment. You've heard their prayers. Like, they are super spiritual. They're on top of it. They're on fire for God. And so he's saying, right, if you want to be good with God, if you want to be righteous enough, well, you just need to be better than they are. Which is bad news, but that's also what Jesus wants in this case. Jesus wants people to realize, well, if that's the standard, I'm not sure I can do that. The Apostle Paul can help us when we put this alongside what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 starts talking about himself. And he says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, in regard to the law of Pharisee, in other words, he was one of those people Jesus was referencing... As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Which, if you are going to say you're faultless, like, how good do you have to be? Right, Paul's saying, like, like, how, like, how close to perfection do you have to get to be like, well, you know, if I'm measuring, like, how good I am at following everything the Bible says, I'm about um, 99%. Like, like, how good do you have to be to be able to do that? And then if you pair what Paul says here with what Jesus just said... Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of faultless, you're in trouble. Which is why Paul then continues in Philippians 3 by saying this about that kind of righteousness. He says, I consider them, or I consider it, that kind of goodness, I consider it garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, if it were up to our own goodness or badness to determine how good we were, we'd be in trouble. Like Paul, who's even, who is like the best of the best and having the behavior nailed and his devotion, his commitment to God, like having it figured out and understanding the scripture, like he had it all figured out and he says, that's not, that's not what makes us good with God. See, if you believe in Jesus, you're good. Like, there's nothing left to do. It's, it's, it's finished. Like, when Christ died and Christ rose, like, he forgave you. He made you right. You, you are good with God. It's not you're good as long as you get your act together. It's not you're good as long as you give enough. It's not good as long as you pray enough or pray hard enough or believe hard enough. No, it's you're good. It's finished. It's complete. It's done. It says you are Righteous. Which is why when James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, what came immediately before he said that? He said, confess your sins to one another. See, because James understands when the church does what the church is supposed to do, like when you are in a family of believers and you start opening up and saying, all right, here's how I screwed up, here's how I dropped the ball. When you're in a small group that can be honest with each other and can really say, all right, here's where I'm struggling, the most important thing that any of those people in the body of Christ can say to that other person is your sins are forgiven. There's nothing that we can do that is more Christ-like when somebody shares their sins with us than we can tell them that their sins are forgiven. And so James says, that's what we do. And then he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Because the prayer of a righteous person is the prayer of a forgiven person. A prayer of a redeemed person. A prayer of a person who has righteousness that is not of their own but comes from Jesus. Which means when you pray, it works. Because you are made righteous. 
And so your prayers are powerful and effective. So the question then is, well, what is it going to do? What will it actually change? Well, the first thing I think that we, we, we should look at and understand about prayer is prayer changes you. See, if you think about kids, so if you, if you, if you work with kids or if you're a parent or step-parent or grandparent or foster parent, like if you spend any time with kids, like you'll learn very quickly about kids. Kids have no problem asking for anything. Right, they'll ask, and they'll ask, and they don't, you know, you know what, like, I, sometimes I wonder, like, when my kids ask a question, like, why didn't they think about this before they asked? They didn't ask, is this a reasonable request, or whether or not I even have enough money to, like, answer this request. They just ask it. They don't care whether they're being annoying or re- reasonable, or whether or not the request is rational. They just ask whatever they want. And the kid knows, like, the only way to get what they want is to ask somebody else because they can't figure it out. They can't drive to the store. They can't get the snack. They can't provide for the food. Like, they know if they want it, they need to ask for it. And so they ask. And they ask and they ask and ask and ask. But see, one of the things the Scriptures teaches us about our relationship with God, John 16 says it this way. It says, ask and you will receive. Matthew 18 says, become like little children, which perhaps maybe for many of us in our prayer life, the struggle in our prayer life is at its heart that we've forgotten how to be like a child who just asks. Because, we, because we're like, well, let me think about, like, is, I mean, am I annoying God? Like, I asked for this about for like 18 weeks in a row. Like, am I getting on his nerves? Like, or is, is this even a possible, like, request? Like, can God really, do, like, no, maybe, like, maybe if we were like more like children, we would just ask because, you know my kids don't struggle to grasp this idea of prayer. They just do it. They just pray. They pray they'll pray for whatever we pray for. They're not worried about it. I am. Like, I struggle with it. See, when we pray, what it teaches us is it teaches us dependence. And kids know how to depend. Kids are born dependent. Because they don't eat. They don't have safety. They don't have provision. They don't have any of that. On their own. And so they know dependence. They actually have to learn independence. And see, for many of us, we've learned how to be independent. We've learned how to fix the problems. We've learned how to find the answers. We will learn how to deal with it. And slowly over time, what we start to believe is well, God just helps those who help themselves. Which, if you believe God helps those who help themselves, you won't pray. Because why would you? Because you should just be able to figure it out. You should just be able to solve the problem. You should just be able to follow the right steps at the right time and everything gets better. But what the scriptures teach us and what prayer reveals to us is that we can't help ourselves. And so we need somebody who can. See, when you feel like you are exhausted and you don't know what to do and so you pray, it forces you to admit that you don't know but God might. When you are desperate for God to rescue you from a particular sin or struggle, you are admitting you need God's help. When you are questioning God's actions or a situation because the what you prayed for didn't work, when you question God's actions or a situation, you're admitting that you don't understand. That it's out of your control. When, when you're asking God to heal, you're admitting you can't fix it. When you're asking for God's directions, you, you are admitting that you don't know the way to go. 
when you're admitting your guilt and asking forgiveness, you're admitting that you've sinned. When you're asking God to make you new, you're admitting that something needs to change. See, it's in those admissions that we reveal our dependence. Self-sufficiency is the greatest enemy of our prayer life. The greatest thing that will fight against us having the kind of prayer life we need is the belief that we've got it under control, that we've got it figured out, that we can just fix it. And I know this because it's true for me. Because the moments that I pray the most are the moments that somehow I get reminded that, I'm, that it's not in my hands. The, the moment that I pray the most is suddenly like I hear about a situation and I can't fix it. I can't help. I don't know what to do. I hear about the relationship that's broken or I hear about, about, about the person who's sick and need healing. I, hear about, I, I, I deal with a sin and I can't fight against that sin. I can't win against that battle. And so when I come face to face with my own inadequacy... That's when I pray. And that's why for many of us, the times that we learn to pray the most are the times when we realize we don't have it figured out. And so prayer changes us. Now what's also interesting though about when prayer changes us, you can also actually look at physical changes in a person that reveal the same truth. See, whether or not you're a Christian, you can actually study science and and brain development. And what you'll actually learn is that whether or not you even believe it, that there are certain spiritual practices that have a physical impact on a person's brain. And so I want to get our nerd hats on for a minute and do a little bit of a science lesson about some brain science. um, Because there's a neuroscientist who's not a Christian who, um, who, who wrote a fascinating book called How God Changes Your Brain. And so he studied the impact of a variety of different things on the brain and, and writes in this research about what he discovered has the most impact on the human brain. And so I want to talk about a couple different parts of the brain. And so the, the, in the frontal part of the brain is called the frontal lobe. Now in this part of the brain, that's the part of your brain that is actually responsible for the rational, deliberate understanding of a loving God. Right, and so when you, and so the way that, that this works is when you think about God in rational, deliberate, or systematic, doctrinal kind of ways, this is the part of the brain that gets activated. And so studying God in that way activates that part of the brain and develops that part of the brain. And the more that part of the brain gets developed, the more you're able to think in those kind of ways. Now, the limbic system is in this middle area of the brain. That's the part of the brain that when you think of God in terms of an emotional connection, so you think of God in relational terms, or you feel the weight of God, or, or you're singing, right, and it brings tears to your eyes, this is the part of the brain that would light up in a brain scan at that time. And so when you, when you experience those things, it, it develops that part of the brain, that ability to think and feel in those kind of ways. And so what's fascinating about this is now either part of the brain, um, if there's too much activity here um, or, or not enough here, it can create a problem. The same with the limbic system, that it can create challenges. And so the challenges with the brain is what can happen is people could become overly obsessed with God or religion or religious behavior, or they could completely give, on up, give up on it altogether because of what is happening in the brain, a person who had a, a very active limbic system, like overly active, would be the kind of person who like gets stuck. Like they can't 
get out of this feeling of they're dwelling on their sin. They're in despair all, all the time, all day. They don't know where to go with it. Right? And so they feel trapped in this depression over their sin. Um, that, like they, they can't get out of that. In fact, many times I think even when we read Luther, I would suggest that I think he, he sometimes he gets stuck there because he, right, this was the feeling like until he reads Romans. That he, he just is overwhelmed with guilt. Now, the person with an overly active limbic system, they would be the kind of person who is so focused on, is there enough evidence? Can I prove the ontological existence of God or not? And so, and so that would happen. And now, now there are all these different portions of the brain that we could highlight. We could, there's a different part of the brain that highlights when we talk about God in anthropomorphic terms. And so if you talk about God as a loving father, if you talk about God who's, who's the creator and he creates with his hands out of the dust of the ground, a different part of your brain starts to light up. If you talk about God, if you, if you start to think about when you listen for God, right, when you're trying to hear from God, a different part of your brain is active. Now, in the, in, in the neuroscience, in this book, one of the things that, that this um, researcher, this scientist said um, he talks about the anterior cingulate, which is right behind the frontal lobe. And so the anterior cingulate is the part of the brain that is responsible for your ability to feel compassion for other people. And so in his research, he's looking at all different kinds of research and different practices and different things that can help your brain develop. And he actually said this about God's love. He said, meditating on any form of love. Now, keep in mind, he's not a Christian, so that's why he phrases it the way he does. Meditating on any form of love, including God's love, appears to strengthen the same neurological circuits that allow us to feel compassion towards others. In his research, what he found was that there are three things that are most significant in in developing this part of a brain. The three things, and they looked at all kinds of practice, not just religious. The, the three things that had the biggest impact, prayer, meditation, and religious singing. Had the greatest impact on a person developing the capacity to show compassion for other people. Now, if you think about that, and some of you might not even be Christian here. Like, think about this for yourself and for your family. Because whether or not you even believe in God, and I want you to believe in God, right? I believe it's true. But whether or not you even believe it, if you want yourself, your family, or your kids to be more compassionate, more socially aware, and more loving people, prayer works. And meditation and gathering together with other Christians and singing religious songs. It does something physically that changes the brain. Now, there are also things that can damage the brain. And so if, you, if, you, if, so, if any of you grew up in an environment that's kind of a hyper-fundamentalist, uh, overly, um, really like law-rule-focused, or maybe a fear-based religious system, that is actually the kind of thing that damages that part of the brain. And so if you experience like this turn or burn or do this or else, it actually hurts that part of the brain and, and, and hurts a person's capacity to actually feel compassion towards others. Right? The same thing would be if a person experiences emotional or physical abuse in the church or even by people who claim to be followers of Jesus. It, it damages that part of the brain, and so maybe they become numb to being able to feel those feelings or even respond aggressively to those things. 
Now, some scientists use all of this just to come to the conclusions, well, doesn't this just prove there's no God? Because really, in a person's experience of God, it's just the brain firing in different ways. It's just neurons doing what neurons do. And so when you think you feel God or when you think you thought about God or discovered God or experienced God, it's really just the brain doing what brain chemistry does. But you could also come to a different conclusion with the same research. You could come to the conclusion that God has hardwired us to be changed by prayer. See, throughout the month of March, from ages 0 to 18, there's a Bible verse that all of, all of our kids and teenagers are studying, and that's that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made, that God, when he knit us together in our mother's womb, he was designing our brains and knitting it together so that the neurons would fire in such a way and respond to certain things, so that when we pray, when we read God's word, when we sing, that we would actually become the kind of people that are better for this world. Like God actually designed us so when we do the things that the scriptures teach us to do, it actually makes us more loving, more compassionate, more human the way that God wants us to be in the world. And when we don't do those things or when the church gets it wrong or when we don't experience it altogether, it actually makes us less the kind of people that God wants in this world. How incredible that God designed our brains in such a way that responds to the very things he tells us to do. Now, prayer, though, is not just about us. It's not just about changing us. When we pray, it makes a difference for other people, too. It's not about just changing our brain chemistry or our hearts or our thoughts and feelings about God. See, sometimes prayer changes God's mind. And now this can be a little bit challenging to think about and nuance it because of the way right, we try to systematize and understand the concept of God. So I realize the challenge, and so I think the best way to help us understand that is just to give some examples because if we read the Bible, we can actually see this in a number of different places. For example, Exodus 32. Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. And when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God, he goes down the mountain. And Israel is already rebelling against those Ten Commandments. They are, they are worshiping the golden calf. And so they're dancing around, partying. God is furious. Moses is upset. And so what God actually tells Moses that he's going to do is God says he's going to destroy the nation of Israel. And so what Moses does, he responds to God in that moment and he begs for mercy. That's his prayer. He says, God, please don't do it. Exodus 32 verse 14 says, The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. He changed his mind. In the book of Jonah, which we spent a number of weeks studying, what we see in Jonah is Jonah, in, 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 in the end, he gets frustrated because God didn't keep his word. Because God didn't make good on his threats to, of judgment against Nineveh. In fact, when he runs away in the beginning, he actually runs away because he knows that God's going to change his mind. He's like, I know what you said you're going to do, God, but I'm, I don't believe you. You're probably not going to do it. And God doesn't do it. Jonah 3.10 says that God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And so and God said he was going to do it, which means either God lied to Jonah or God changed his mind with Jonah. In Isaiah chapter 38. God tells Hezekiah, you're going to die, you will not recover. And then Hezekiah prays. Isaiah comes back with a message from God, says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you and I will add 15 years to your life. 
that something changes. Those were years that he didn't have. See, God doesn't change, but God does change his mind. In fact, every time we see God change his mind in the scripture, he's always becoming more merciful, more gracious, more compassionate, more slow to anger. See, God does change his mind, and it's always becoming more in character with who he is. And so God doesn't change. God is always loving. He's always good. He's always forgiving. He's always all-powerful. And that never changes, which is significant because sometimes God changes mind, which means sometimes things also don't change. It means sometimes the situation doesn't change, the circumstance doesn't change, the healing doesn't come. And that, and that matters because even when those things don't change, God doesn't change. God's still good. God's still loving. He's still merciful. He's forgiving. See, when we read the scriptures, the way people pray throughout the Bible is they pray as though they believe God actually will respond They pray believing that God actually might do something. They pray believing that he actually might show up and do a miracle. They they pray believing that he actually might change things. And they pray believing that even in the moments that sometimes he doesn't do what they wanted him to do. Sometimes he didn't change things, yet they continue to believe that their prayers are somehow powerful and effective. Somehow, because of their relationship with God, they can go to him and he listens and he responds. And so they beg God, change Things. They go to God on behalf of other people and they ask God to change his mind. They even know what God said he was going to do and they ask him to do something different. And so know this when you pray. God won't change. Which means that the way God thinks about you won't change. Your standing with God won't change. Who God has declared you to be won't change which also means your prayers will always be powerful and effective. Those prayers will be powerful and effective no matter how good or bad you feel like you are. Those prayers will be powerful and effective no matter how often you feel like God has failed to answer your prayers the way you want it to be. Those prayers will be powerful and effective no matter how strong you feel like your faith will be. Your prayers are powerful and effective. And know this, that when you pray, God doesn't change, which means that your prayers are powerful and effective to actually change things. They're powerful enough to change you, to change your relationship with God. It means they're powerful enough to change the people that you're praying for. It means that they're powerful enough to change the situation you're in means those prayers are powerful enough to change hearts, to change lives, even to change circumstances. And whether or not the answer is what you want the answer to be, those prayers remain powerful to do what you didn't dream possible. But faith isn't believing it's the possible. Faith is trusting that God can do the impossible. See, God hears our prayer, he responds to our prayers, and those prayers are powerful. Because you are made righteous. Your prayers work. And so I want to close with prayer. 
And I know that, like, that's, right, we're supposed to wrap up with prayer. Like, I know that's, like, if, like, we're going through the motion, that's just what you do. But I want, I want to point that out because I want to pray like we mean it. Like, we actually believe that when, when we say these words, because God has declared us righteous, because he said you're forgiven, like, when we pray, God actually changes things, that he actually hears us, that he's actually doing something. And so I want to pray people who believe that and people who want to believe that. Jesus, you are incredible, God. And prayer is difficult. It's challenging. It's challenging for a bunch of different reasons. It's challenging because sometimes I don't want to pray. Sometimes I don't feel like I can pray. Sometimes I feel like my prayers haven't worked. Sometimes I feel like maybe it's me, maybe it's you. God, I just pray that you teach us to be people who depend on you, people who are desperately aware that we don't got control of this, that we don't have it figured out, God, that we need you. We need you to do what only you can do. And God, I pray that we would know that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are yours. And God, I also pray that you would change things that you would show up and do what only you can do, that your power would change hearts, that it would change minds, that it would change situations. God, I pray for the people in here whose hearts maybe are numb or maybe are far from you, maybe who don't even believe this. God, I pray that you would be at work right now, that you would change hearts, that you would change minds. God, I pray for people in here, maybe somebody got news or a diagnosis, I pray, God, that you would do the impossible, that you would heal, that you would rescue. God, I pray for the broken relationships, for the marriages, for the families, for the friendships that are hurting, for the situations that we think they can't be fixed, they can't be repaired. God, I pray that you do what only you can do, that God, you would heal, that you would store, that you would reconcile. God, I pray that you would change us as your church to be people who make your name known. God, I pray that you would change us, that you would change our cities, that you would change our world so that people be aware of your power at work, that people would be forgiven, that people would be set free. God, do the impossible. God, do what only you can do and help us be witnesses to that power.